duty is not the end game of Christianity at all. At all, yo. It is something far greater. Um, we're, we're closing this series and we're, we're, we're closing uh, the year out. And you know, you get more reflective as the year ends. And you're like, yo, where did the time go? 2019 was a blur. Some of us are like, I'm glad it was a blur. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us are like, yeah, let, can we just squeeze a few more days of 2019? Because it was awesome. Um, but as I've been reflecting, you know, I think back to the statement that we started this series. Actually, it was week two of this series where it was like, man, you know, like when you're born, you look like your parents, but when you die, you look like your decisions. And it's just one of those things that just kind of still resonating with me. And and as I was just preparing for this this day and just, you know, just praying through our church and, and, and looking at the future, not just 2020, but 2021 and 2022. And I was like, man, Miami is home. Like, I don't have any plans for being elsewhere. Like one of the things I was just thinking about was like, man, like as much as this was a blur and I've and been in Miami for like now going on six years, like time is really fickle. Like sometimes it feels long, sometimes it feels short, uh, but the fickleness of time doesn't remove this reality that life is too short and eternity is too long. Like that is, that is our overarching reality, that life is short and eternity is long. And life is too short and eternity is too long for certain things to get primary attention and other things to become afterthoughts. Say that again. Life is too short and eternity is too long for certain things to preoccupy us, to get primary attention and for other things to become afterthoughts. Let me just ramble for a second with some of the things that cannot become afterthoughts when given the reality of the brief or the brevity of of life and the extended length of eternity. One thing is where I stand with Jesus. Like that, like that can't be an afterthought. Whether I affirm him as God overall or whether I say, you know, he was just some man that I, I disagree with or he was crazy. Like, what, what, like I just can't not deal with him. Like I have to engage with him in some authentic, sincere Wait, where I stand with Jesus is one of those things that, that cannot be an afterthought. And if that leads you to the point of resurrection, amen. But if not, at least wrestle. So where I stand with Jesus, it, it cannot be an afterthought. The, the next thing, um, if I may ramble a little bit, the next thing is, like, what was I made to do? discovering what I was made to do and actually doing it. That cannot be an afterthought. One of my favorite movies of all time um, is Robin Williams, Rest His Soul, um, Dead Poets Society. And in this, he stands on this table and he's, he's encouraging his class, but he, he makes this statement from, um, I think it's Henry David Thoreau or Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of those existential thinkers. Uh, but what he says is this, he says that most men live lives of quiet desperation then go to the grave with a song still in their heart. Freak me out. Because it's true. It's essentially there's this angst and this fear and this suffering and silence where people are afraid to do anything and then they die. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. So, so, so life is too short. Eternity is, is, is way too long to not discover what you were made to do and then actually going to do it as opposed to just living some life of quiet desperation and then dying full of regrets. The next, if I could continue to ramble, is something that we're actually going to spend the first six weeks, five, maybe seven of next year, 2020, wrestling with. But life is too short and eternity is too long to harbor bitterness in your heart. Like, uh, it's just not worth it to just live with resentment bound by somebody else killing yourself while somebody else is living their life up because you're bitter. It's a waste. Got to learn the language of forgiveness as hard as that is. And by learning the language of forgiveness, becoming wounded healers where we are wounded deeply, but we use our hands to heal the world around us. That's actually the start of next year. 
But the last of the rambling, which, which actually is today, which actually is this series, is life is too short and eternity is too long to make joy and the pursuit of joy an extracurricular activity as opposed to core to Christianity. Let me explain. Some of you know my story. I started off a biochem pre-med, thought I was going to be a doctor, make a whole lot of money uh, so my family would never have to work again and retire and be a pastor. Sophomore year in college, God said no. I said, thank you, Lord. And the reason um, I said, thank you, Lord, is because I was staring at the barrel of organic chemistry and Cal 3. And I had just finished Cal 2. I was like, man, you know what? This whole implicit differentiation business, it's cool to sound smart, not going to help me in life. You know what I mean? And so when I switched um, for biochem to anthro, what I realized was like a lot of the classes that were core to biochem, they weren't core to anthro. I was like, man, I wasted like 15 hours, you know, but praise God, I still graduated because God is good, not because I was smart. Now, in that, I had the option in pursuing this anthro degree uh, uh, to take Cal 3. It was, you know, and that would have been stupid. It would have been a waste because I was like, why would I? It's no longer core to my degree plan. So the only reason I would have done it if I was like, you know, a stickler for pain and long nights in the library. So I didn't do it. And what I've seen in most of our lives, especially in American Christianity, is that we treat joy to Christianity like I treated Cal 3 to anthropology. Maybe I'll do it if I want to like get after it and prove how smart I am, but not really. And, and in Christianity, in American context, often what happens is it becomes about duty and do this and don't do that and get this. And it's like, wait a second. When you see the scriptures and the God who is the story of God and how he reveals himself to people, what you see is that he is constantly pulling us from a place of just duty and grit to delight and joy. That pursuing joy is not extra curricular to Christianity. It is Christianity. It is a pursuit of joy to know deeply the God who is, who unravels truth all around us, stars and skies and breath in our lungs, the God who knows us by name, our true name, redeemed, son, daughter. It's a pursuit of that. But one of the things that we've been wrestling with for the last few weeks, and what we were going to continue to say is that the path of and pursuit of joy runs through generosity. You do not know joy in its fullness until you have a life that is generous. It does not exist. And biblical generosity, when God says, I want this in you, it's not from us, it's for us. This is why we're constantly reiterating that, that God calls us to biblical generosity not to get something from us as if he needs, but to give something to us because he's good. That is the ethos of this thing that we call faith, a pursuit of joy, living generous lives because we're free. We notice God who knows us and we delight in him. And today as we close, if you hear nothing, hear that, that God is relentlessly, aggressively, tenderly, compassionately after joy. He wants hearts, not just hands. And that is beautiful truth. It's free and truth because it is exhausting to try and work for God. No, like, like, you know, like I'm going to push through this monsoon that is random because I feel like I have, to, you know, how tiring stuff like that is. I'm just going to read my Bible today because I feel like if I don't, God's going to get me. Like, you know, like, I, like I'm going to give some stuff today because I feel if I don't, people are going to look at me kind of differently. They're going to side eye me. You know how tiring that is? That is not Christianity. It is an exercise in delight. And yes, there's some duty, but the fuel is delight. Deuteronomy 26 is absolutely loaded. 
It gives us a principle that should shape our lives. It's, it's, it's rich. It's beautiful. It's not just a principle. It's a practice. So all of the stuff we've talked about over these previous weeks have been paradigm shifting, right? That generosity is something that God wants for us, not necessarily from us, that when we start to think about how we live generous lives and we find joy, we're making value statements with our giving to others onto the Lord as well. And so it's not about what you're giving to. It's not need-based. It's where you're giving from. It's heart-oriented. And then here, there's this principle that it just leaps out of Deuteronomy 26, this idea of the first and the best but it's not just a principle like, oh, that's good truth to ponder and consider. It's a practice, a worthy practice that I hope will carry us today into next year and the rest of our lives. I'm going to read it straight through. Uh, the movement of our text is the first part, really, there's some implications that are worth considering. And then you get this motivation of the act, and then you get the aftermath. And so that's actually going to be the movement of our text and our time is we're just going to look at some of the implications behind this principle. What's the motivation? Where is it coming from? What's the aftermath that the text leads us to? And then I'll close with some thoughts. And actually, I'm going to plead with us. I mean, like, keep sweat pleading. Like, I may twist a little bit, get on my knees, temptations, beg and plead for some sympathy. I don't mind. Um, read with me. I was like corny. Like, I thought that was going to hit differently. It didn't. Uh, like, let me, I'm free. I'm free. Uh, Deuteronomy 26. Let's read. Um, Carrie read it earlier beautifully. Um, let me see if I could follow uh, suit. Uh, Deuteronomy 26. It reads like this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance that you have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall place it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. You should go to the priest who is in the office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers, to give us. That the priest shall take from the basket your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Oh, I like this part. This is like, I love it. Verse five. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. And to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. And you know, if you just make marks in your Bible, that's a subtle, rich, bedrock truth. The sojourner, you can just underline that, star it. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, 
according to all you commanded that you have commanded me. I've not transgressed, have not sinned against, I have not trampled over, I have not betrayed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tide while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I've done all according to all that you have commanded me. Now look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel. And the ground, bless the ground, bless the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your hearts and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people, a people for his treasured possession. As he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. It's loaded. There's a lot here. First of all, that's every text. There's just a lot because the Bible is just layered. There's so much truth here. Let me just set up what's happening here. So, so one of the rich things about Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy is really just a series of sermons by Moses. And so the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Moses was a man, fragile, fra- fearful, like frail. God called him to be an instrument of liberation and freedom to lead a people out of bondage into this glorious experience of life. Moses. Moses had a moment in his journey where he was super disobedient with God. God said, I want you to speak to the rock. I know this one time I told you to hit the rock. This time I want you to speak to the rock. Moses, after mourning the death of his sister, unaware of the depths of his heart, because we know what emotions do to us. Like we're in a, we're heightened emotions, emotional states. We just kind of do stuff that we would otherwise do. So in this heightened emotional state, he disobeys God. He hits the rock instead of speaking to it. Water still comes out because God is still faithful. But then God says, yo, Moses, there are consequences. Yes, there's grace, but sometimes there's consequences. And sometimes grace actually is the consequences. And so Moses is no longer allowed to go into the promised land with this people that he had been sojourning with, leading out of Egypt, leading in the wilderness. Instead, he has to watch them go into the promised land. And so what Moses does is he starts to pen the history of Israel from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And what you get is this powerful theme that God can be trusted. And Moses is having these series of sermons that he is writing to a people who grew up without firsthand experience of the wonders of God. People who were born in the wilderness, not in Egypt. People like us who weren't there witnessing it firsthand. That's why I love Deuteronomy. Because though it may speak to people who seem far off from us, it really speaks to us. People on the precipice of faith, will we believe? And so he starts to to, to write these series of sermons. And what you start to see is that it, it's almost redundant. And, and if you preach for any amount of time, you start to realize, and I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Well, yeah, uh, because that's the nature of truth. You're just looking at it from different angles. So there's some level of redundancy in Deuteronomy, but you get to this passage and he's reiterating some of the statues that he's already commanded, namely this principle of the first and the best that comes up in offerings and tithes. Now, let me just say something for um, my, my quote-unquote intellectual Christian friends. 
So there's some intellectual Christians who will look at something like tithing and they will say, you know what, that's not what we're responsible for anymore. That is an Old Testament covenant principle. You don't got to do that. That's wrong. Let me just go ahead. Like, let me not even like be, that's wrong. Let me let me show you why it's wrong. Todd, let me tell you why it's wrong. bro. Like, so here's why it's wrong. First off. He's not tying this to a covenant. He's tying this to a principle. Let me explain. So you see that even the, the, the idea of tithing, which really just means tent, came not by Moses, but by this guy named Melchizedek in Genesis 14. So it predates Moses. And when the author of Hebrews looks back and tries to argue how Jesus is the promised Messiah that every person has been waiting for, specifically the Israelites, he goes to Melchizedek and he says, Jesus is a better version of him. He's a better priest, a better high priest. So we should offer to Jesus in the same way that we offer to Melchizedek. That's what he's going to get at in Hebrew. So it's not tied to the Old Testament covenant. It's tied to who God is. Furthermore, in Genesis 4, so we can go right back to the Bible, like the, the beginning. In Genesis 4, right after the fall, you have this interesting scenario between two brothers, Cain and Abel. Maybe you've heard of them. And in this scenario between these two brothers, you have the first murder that takes place in human history. And there's a lot to see there. But one of the things that we see is that the first murder actually took place in worship. It was in a worship environment where the first murder took place, which is why if you look at stuff like Matthew 18, it's like if you have ought with your brother, if there's tension, if there's beef there, and you come into the same room, don't just start singing songs. Go deal with it because you don't know what's going to happen in your heart when you see them. You may be like, oh, mm -hmm, I got because the first murder took place in a worship environment. But what's fascinating is the environment was one where they were offering onto God different things. And the only discernible difference between their offering of Cain and Abel was, was when they gave it. That, 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 that Cain, he, he, he got from the land and he, he gave discretionary after the fact. Abel, he got from the first fruits and he said, this is yours, O God. And God said, I like that one. I receive that one. I honor that one. I commend that one. But this one, I don't. Cain got angry, and then he killed his brother. But all that to say, this idea of first best tithing, again, it is not tied to the Old Testament covenant for my more intellectually inclined Christians. It is tied to the character of God and the heart of humanity. And so what, what, what he's saying here, there's some implications behind this principle of giving your first and your best. So he says, when you come into the land, you, you gather the first of all of the, the harvest and you go give it to the Lord. Implication one is that he is designating the place where they're supposed to give this which is the, the, the house of the Lord. Now, this is very fascinating because Israel wasn't just a people, they were also a nation. And so if you get to that back part of Deuteronomy 26, that almost seems weird, was like tied in the third year. That means you're not supposed to tithe regularly. No, no, that was a specific tithe where every three years they collected so that they could specifically care for the vulnerable among them. Fatherless, widow, Sojourner, that's immigrants, people at the border. And so, so he, he said that, no, no, there's this unique moment in your history where you are to gather it all, bring it to the storehouse, because you're not just a people, you're a nation, so you're governed by different rules. And in your governing is generosity. You care for those around you. But the designated place was the temple. Now, that is Old Testament. There's not a temple, Jesus is going to say in John 4, that it's not about place, it's about a person. And from a person, it's a people. So the designated place is no longer this Old Testament temple. It's the church. Now, that may rub some of us, and that's okay. 
because it forces us to actually belong and engage so that we can say, yo, if I am going to give something, I really want to know where it's going. So it's actually a very good thing because it, it produces a level of investment and care and relationship and belonging. And so that's the one implication. The, the other implication is you got to think agriculturally. This is, this is fascinating. So most of us get paid first to the 15th. And if some, you know, so you know how much you're getting paid monthly and then it kind of gets split, you know what I mean, between these two paychecks. Now, some of you like get paid, you know what I mean, once a month. And some of you pay other people because you're boss status. And I just want to affirm you for your boss statusness. You know what I mean? But because you know what's coming, like there is a level of security that you have. Like, so if somebody doesn't pay you what they owe you, you take them to court, right? You're like, oh, <laughs> you ain't gonna give me my check. I remember this one job I had, they didn't pay me. It was a very fascinating scene. There was a revolt for like all the workers. We all showed up there and it was crazy. And I was like in the background cause I was like a Christian and high key a pastor at my church. So I was like, yeah, give us our money. You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> but it was a crazy scene, yo. Am I lying? It was a crazy scene. And so, but, but so you know what you're doing. So you're like, you could kind of count. That's why you create a budget, blah, blah, blah. If you're in an agricultural system, you don't actually have the liberty of that. So when he says the first of the harvest, that's essentially whatever comes out the ground, you gather it and you give it. You don't know what's coming next. Which means that the first fruits, quite practically, could be your entire harvest. But you still give it. Do you see what he's doing there? Do you see the implication there? The implication is that it's bringing these people to a place of dependence and faith. Dependence that God, one, you already provided this. So now, thank you. I had a way for you to provide it again. And faith that I actually am going to wait and believe that you will provide it again. Honoring God with the first and the best brings us to a place of remembrance of where everything comes from and faithful dependence of who gives it to us. So this is an implication. This is a, yo, like the fear and anxiety and angst that exists in you when you are looking at your harvest and you are carrying this to the temple. Like, I don't want you to ignore it, but I want you in faith to keep coming and keep bringing it. But there's some motivation for that. That is five on down, five through um, really uh, 11. It, it, it's, it's a retelling of the story. Can I just go through some of the, the highlights of this? Like, like, so again, I prayed that I would worship, but I feel like, man, this has been absolutely rocking me. So it starts off, it says, and you shall make this response before the Lord. So, so he's, he's starting to get at the motivation. So don't just, don't just drag yourself to this act. You, you run to it. This is a response, not a reaction. So it's a planned act. It's not just this impulsive, instinctive thing. You are actually having to take intentional thought, time and thought to do it. It's a response, not a reaction. It means there's some motivation that's happening here. And, and it starts off and it says, you say this. You used to start retelling the story of, of grace. And there's different aspects of grace. It says, you say that my father was a wandering Aramean. That is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. I keep coming back to it because it is necessary for our moment in history. This is so loaded. Because if you know anything about the Jewish people, in this day, there was a level of arrogance that existed amongst them. Arrogance that led to ethnocentrism and racism. That literally everywhere you see is you are supposed to care for those among you, sojourners, those who aren't like you, those who aren't from the same geographical space as you, those who may have wandered into this promised land that I brought you. Yet amongst them was this level of arrogance and ethnocentrism that we're Jewish and you're not. When what is absolutely fascinating is that they're Jews not primarily by birth, but by grace because their father wasn't actually a Jew. Abraham, 
get that. He was a Gentile. He was a wandering Aramean, nomadic, homeless, no place to rest his head. That sounds a lot like somebody I know. Yet, as he wandered around, God met him in his wandering. And he said in Genesis 12, you wandering Aramean Abram, I will make of you a great nation. So just the grace of God to take this wandering Aramean and to make something of him is rich and robust, but it also should empty any human of some level of ethnocentrism, especially people who may claim to be Christian. Freed of all of that nonsense, because we are born of something better than ethnicity, although we will carry ethnicity into the new age to come. Keeps going. There's another part of here that's just... So he, he was wandering, sojourning, and he went down to, to, to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. Like, so, so first you have this, just this, just, it starts off with grace, the grace of God to take this wanderer and to say, I'm going to make you, make you something. And then that same grace, as he's wandering, it says sojourn there, that he's, he's journeying to, to Egypt. And if you, if you remember kind of the story of, of the people of God, the reason they journeyed into Egypt, because there was a famine in the land, so they ended up going there to try to find life. So they, they went there, quote unquote, with their own intentions. But they went there small, and they left there huge. So, so what you see is that, Though it seems through their own intentions that they made their way to Egypt, it was really God's divine intention that brought them there for a purpose. It is this collision of human responsibility and divine intent. It's all throughout the Bible. It's Jeremiah where the people have rebelled against God and they are now going to be carried away into exile. And, 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 and Jeremiah says to them, thus says the Lord, that, that Nebuchadnezzar has carried you into this Babylonia exile, but it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. I carried you into this exile. It's human authorship, human responsibility, and divine agents acting. It's grace. You, you, you see that there. But, they, but then you keep going down that while they were in Egypt, they, they were treated harshly. They were beaten and enslaved and oppressed. Can I just say, this is extra, but it came out when I was reading and just processing and praying. And I just, let me just say this for us. Man, truth is powerful. Truth is powerful, yo. Like, once you get it and you know it and you hold on to it, you can't shake it. And I, I was just thinking about, like, man, how in some co countries and some contexts where there's high levels of oppression, there's a silencing of truth. Like, like think about American history and how even amongst like African-American slaves, they weren't able to read the Bible. Could you imagine being a slave reading this? Wait a second. You mean there's a God who exists, who deals with people who oppress other people? Could you imagine being in some communist regime right now and getting a hold of the truth is so powerful. I just needed to say that. But the truth here is, is this, that they were oppressed and they were afflicted and they, they had heavy toil. And then you have two words that should absolutely rock us to the core. Read, it says this, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and oppression. It's layered. So have you ever been in an argument with somebody, you know, or a healthy disagreement? Like, so you've been in a healthy disagreement with somebody, and here's what phrase usually comes out in a healthy disagreement, conflict resolution. I feel like you're not hearing me. Have you ever said that? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where you're like, man, I... Like, I, I know that you know, like, audibly, like, so you're nodding, you know what I mean? But I don't really feel like you're hearing me. And what we're saying is, I think what we're saying is, like, I don't think that you're responding appropriately to what's happening here. Right? You know what I'm saying? Because if you really heard me, things would be a little bit different. Yes? 
That's conflict resolution. So I don't really feel like you're hearing me. And so this, this Lord heard, this Lord saw. It's not just audible awareness or acknowledgement. It's attentiveness. It's I hear you and I'm moving to action. Oh, it's a, it's a picture of tender care and presence. I heard you crying out to me and I didn't turn away. And then you get to the, the back part, no, last part of this. That, and he brought us into this place by, by flexing. He didn't just deliver us, he displayed his power. He brought us into this place and gave us this land and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. That means there's a lot of richness there. This is a story of grace. And so when they are gathering up the first fruits to give to the Lord, to honor him, and they are having to deal with the anxiety that not knowing the future brings, am I alone in that? Are they alone in that? They're having to deal with some of the arrogance that says, wait a second, yeah, God gave it, but man, I had to go plant these seeds. I had to wake up at 9 a.m., really 5 a.m. so I could beat this Miami traffic. They're, and the arrogance that says it was by the sweat of their brow and not the grace of the Lord that provided this harvest, this anxiety and this arrogance that may have been in their hearts as they are walking to the temple and they get there they are now forced to retell the story of grace back into their hearts. All year we have said that there comes a point when we stop listening to our hearts and we start leading our hearts. And this is a moment of leading and they're leading their hearts by grace, abundant grace, grace that goes beyond anything we can imagine. Let me apply this to tithing real quick, and then I'm going to get to the aftermath that I'm going to breeze through because I feel like I've I spent a lot of time there just because it was for me. I have a lot of conversation around this area, and I, I know the apprehension because, man, you know, I've been pastoring, so I, I see the tension, and, you know, I told a story. I just, you don't want to come off as that guy. But, man, there is truth that joy is tethered to generosity. And when you start to think about even this issue of tithing and, and honoring the Lord with your first and your best, like, this isn't law. And you start to think, well, even 10%, because you could just kind of get into this, like, duty, clockwork type, robotic response with God. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ten percent. But but if 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 the retelling of grace is what is motivating them to keep going, then if we apply grace even to the tide, what we'll see is that tithing is actually the floor of biblical generosity, not the ceiling. Because grace, it doesn't lower bars; it meets them and raises them. And so when you, when, you, when you see them retelling this story, that's why you start to see that they, they even go beyond just 10%. They're like, wait a second. My father was a wandering Aramean. And then they, Phew. and so, so there's something beautiful about grace, but grace works best when it's personalized. Not when it's generalized, when it's like, oh yeah, that's a good act. No, no, no. But when it's like, no, that, that's a good act to me. So this is this motivation, this personalized experience of rich grace. It leads to this aftermath verse 10. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you into your house and to you and the Levite and the sojourners among you. The aftermath is worship. The alignment of my heart and what's in my heart is my mind, my emotions, my, my will, the alignment of my heart to the truth of who God is. That's the aftermath. The aftermath is rejoicing. It's a command, though. It's not a suggestion. 
rejoicing isn't eliminating reality. Like it's not saying that life is all raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens. It's it's not saying that. It's it's not denying that things may not be well. It's not erasing the pain. It's embracing an even greater truth that there's a God who is, that he is actually there, that he is personal, that he is a provider, that he is powerful, that he is good. That's rejoicing. It is to look life square in the face and say, I know who holds you in his hands. Rejoice. He says that's the aftermath of of worshiping and giving is rejoicing in God. And might I suggest that a lot of the joy that's absent in Christians now is because we're not honoring God with our first and our best. And when we, quote, unquote, do the first and the best, it's more duty, not the light. We're not retelling the story of the gospel. We're retelling the story of grace, that God is more committed to me than I am to him. And by strength and love and tenderness, he will pull me from bondage into the promised land because he's good. The story of grace. But the aftermath isn't just this worshipful rejoicing. It's this sober sincere recommitment. Notice the end. That's how it closes in verse 16. He says, this day, this day the Lord commands you to do these things. And here's what verse 17 says. You have declared today. You're, You're declaring something. And here's what you're declaring. I will walk in his ways and I will keep his commandments. And this is what God has declared to us, that, 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 that you will be my treasured possession. It's this, it's this vow renewal, if you will. Not because the relationship is at stake, but because the parties in the relationship are saying, this actually matters. Uh, May 23rd, I hit 10 years with, with my wife, um, and we had a vow. Yeah, you can clap, I think. Is that clap worthy? Maybe. It wasn't about the clap. But, but um, you know, we... we <laughs> We, we had a vow renew on the beach, and it was like, I actually didn't really want to do it, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, I was like, it's not really what I want to do. It's about who I love. And so, like, I came into this moment, and, like, I came there, and I was like, man, I was foolish not want to do this, because this was a powerful moment for me to just look at her, <laughs> and, and, you know, it was like, and, she, and it was just like, yeah, I will say I do again. And, you know, I've been married for 10 years, and those 10 years weren't erased by saying I do again, but it did give life to me. That's what's happening here. Recommitment isn't saying that the vow was insincere. It's saying that the human heart is weak and frail and you need moments of reminder and moments of strength for the journey that's coming. And so this was a regular recommitment that they had to do. That every time they gave, they were recommitting back to the Lord. Saying, yo, like Jesus, I know my heart, prone to wander, prone to stray, prone to be anxious, prone to be arrogant, prone to think that I made this, not you. And then I won't even consider you with my resources, thus my life. I'll just go my own way. But by bringing you the first and the best, not the afterwards, I'm recommitting love to you. And God says, hey, I never left. But by declaring this, I want you to be reminded of what I'm saying to you. You are mine. And I love you. I need to close with this. I was reading this, I was preparing for this. And I was thinking through our church, thinking through our city, thinking through friends, thinking through this moment in Christianity not just in America, but global, that just seems to be very interesting. And one of the things that just really rocked me was, this is a clear command. And I said this a few weeks ago, and it's fair to say it now, we do all sorts of spiritual gymnastics so that we don't have to obey. And one of the gymnastics that I've seen us doing in our moment in time 
is we have leaned heavily, and I, I have a therapeutic background, we have leaned heavily into this emotional health space. And what we've done is we've made emotions the litmus test of obedience. And so it's like, I don't do unless I feel. And the, ch- the, the, the challenge there is feelings are terrible prerequisites for obedience. They're great fuel. They add fire to the act. But they're, they are not what should always come before the act. I remember when Serenity was born. She pooped on my new jeans. And I was like, oh my goodness. This is going to be my life for at least a year and a half. And when it was time to change her, I would look for Diamond. I was like, yo, hey, babe. <laughs> you know, so I just wanted to talk. And really what I was doing was I was trying to initiate a conversation so that she could be like, what is that smell? I was like, you smell that too? You, you smell that? That wasn't just me? And then, you, yo, sinner. Yo, I was just such a, I was just a terrible person. I'm better now. I'm more humble. And yeah, amen. <laughs> but... But there was one moment, yo, where she was gone, you know, and it was like, all right, Serenity, we are here, yo. <laughs> and I did not feel like it, man. Let me not even, that was like week two, yo. But I looked at her, and she was smiling as she was stanking, yo. <laughs> and I was like, let's get it. And I changed that diaper, and I became a diaper-changing professional in that moment, yeah. And I could just imagine, yo, like had I let my feelings take over, she would have been sitting in that for at least seven hours because Diamond was gone um, recording music and doing some other stuff. And, yeah, but you know that, like knowing that feelings aren't prerequisites, that's being an adult. That's just adulting. And it's very interesting how the scriptures use language like maturity and growing up. That biblical maturity has the ability to say, though I don't feel, I will do. In fact, you get all of these scriptures that show this. Haggai 1, 12 through 14 is this powerful scripture where in the book of Haggai, it's actually a rebuke where the people of God have neglected the house of God, the temple. And Haggai comes in and he rebukes them and he says, yo, like, is now the time for your house to be well and dandy while the Lord's house is in shambles? Now's the time for that? And he rebukes them. And the people are like, you know, that's, that's true. That's true. I am neglecting. And, and what verse 12 says is that Zerubbabel and, 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 and the son of the high priest and all the people obeyed. And then what verse 14 says is the Lord stirred them within. See what happened? You see how obedience came before the feeling there? But the feeling followed suit. Might I say that in our lives right now, not just this area, but in other areas, there is a lot of things that God is calling us to do. And we don't feel like it. But if we in courageous faith see the truth and respond, faith will lead us to greater feelings and affections. So if you're staring at a crossroads of action where you are looking at truth dead in the face, but you know in your heart there's a disconnect. There's not a feeling there. You are not alone. But we stop listening to our hearts and we start leading them and we say, you don't have to be here, heart. There's a future for you with affections and obedience and delight and joy. And in this context, it's tied to generosity. I'm closing with this prayer that I hope would be for next year. It's actually a prayer that we said in May and then when when we said in August when I came back from sabbatical. And I think that it's appropriate for where we are and what I hope 2020 will be for all of us. The first part of this prayer is this, God, help me receive your love and strengthen me for the fight of expressing it because love is war. Love is warrior. And all of this is an experience of love. To rest in the light and to work from that space. Love is war. So God, help me receive your love and strengthen me for the fight of expressing it. And this is a prayer for our people. 
I think it's appropriate to close with this. Close this last Sunday in 2019, thinking about even the text that we just read. Father, God, help us to understand how loaded that word is, how life-giving it can be, how overused it seems because it's often detached from your greatness and glory. Yet the word and its meaning is simply majestic, Father. Would we catch an ever-expanding vision of life in your hands? Bring us beyond the boundaries of our fear. There are people waiting for you without even knowing it. Ironically, it seems you're waiting for us and we don't seem to know it. Oh, Father, bring us beyond the boundaries of our fear, Jesus. What a beautiful name you have. The scope and depth of your life and love is breathtaking. You who touched the untouchable, you held the unwanted, you pursued the disregarded and still kept and care for your own, you're worthy. Your worth is often dimmed by the gods that we make. Counterfeits of glory, counterfeits of goodness, over-promising and under-delivering, but that's not the case with you. You go beyond our categories of good, our categories of love, our categories of justice, our categories of you. Would we see you? Would we want the want to, to walk with you, oh God? Would the simplicity and dignity of the cross you carried and hung on empty us, empty us of ourself only to be filled with more of you? We need you. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Make us come alive again. Mend and renew what's been broken or stagnant. Protect and increase a fire within and among us. Create an atmosphere of grace where we rest in and taste of your goodness and strength. Create an atmosphere of truth where we delight in the word of God, treasuring it, trusting it, flourishing in it. You are able to do work beyond our imagination. Would we believe that you're not just able, but you're willing? Breathe on us. God, I love and believe in these people, our people, your people. Would we go beyond as a people from all people passionate for you? Would the riches of Christ dwell, dwell deep in us? Would we drink deeply from the gospel, your story? Would humility, energy, unity, and joy mark us as we live passionately in the family of God as brothers and sisters? Would we be a blessing to the people around us, the community around us, the culture around us, bringing the better wine with our presence, which is your presence, joining you in everyday life that people may experience eternal life? engaging actively in the mission of God for your name and others' good. Will we thirst for more and more and more? Content but never settling, stirred deeply from within, by you and for you. Stir within us to know you. Send us to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.